everyone, and welcome to the 10th episode of SFD, the fifth in our series on Iran and the U.S.'s involvement there. Some local news first. I had another really interesting conversation with Rob Morris of the More Freedom Foundation a little while ago on Iran and Saudi Arabia and what's going on with Qatar. So if you're interested, check out the cleaned up version that I have up on the site. As a corollary and at Rob's insistence, I've now got a Patreon set up at patreon.com slash democracy. I said otherwise in our last short show, but it's now set up for monthly payments, and anything you can commit to, from a dollar on up, goes a long way in Mexico, and a long way towards making sure that these shows come out faster and more regularly. We've also got some rewards set up, so check that out. Likewise, I've got to keep imploring you that while I know asking you for 10 bucks a month is a lot, uh, asking you to share these shows is a bit lower key. So do me that favor, and go into the world and proclaim the bad news to all creation. All right, housekeeping out of the way, we're getting right up to it now. Savak, Nixon, arms deals, and the new theologians. My name is Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. In the interest of getting us back into it, uh, let's recap real quick. The U.S., together with the British, get rid of Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953 and restore Mohammed Reza Shah Pahlavi to the Peacock Throne. Throughout the 1950s, the Shah slowly consolidates his authority, filling Parliament and the ministries with picked, obsequious men. Partly because of inner political goings-on and partly because of Jack Kennedy's rhetoric, the Shah tries opening up the country politically a little bit in the 1960s. Predictably, though, the Iranian people use that opportunity to express their displeasure with the current regime. Outraged at their disloyalty, the Shah closes politics back up and uses his intelligence service, Savak, to suppress the opposition through beatings, disappearances, torture, and murder. He also, taking a cue from the reformers among that same opposition, starts what he calls a white revolution, a program of economic and social development funded by oil money, and designed to win over whatever part of the population was left after the secret police was through with it. Despite, or even because of that same reform program, resistance was developing outside of Iran in liberation movements that tried to blend socialism and Shia Islam, and in the person of the Ayatollah Khomeini, 
attacking the regime from exile in Iraq. Again, the free world is troubled by trouble in Iran. Regarding with anxiety the rioting and plots said to be aimed at overthrowing Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, a ruler who has long been regarded as one of the West's best friends in the Middle East. Ironically, one of the causes of the new rioting was the Shah's land reform program instituted to ease the lot of the country's impoverished peasants at the expense of large landholders. A secondary contributing trouble factor was the Shah's plans for the emancipation of the nation's women. Rioting against this program was led by leaders of a strict Muslim sect opposed to women's suffrage. So, setting aside the reasons that he had for beginning it that I got into in the last episode, how did the Shah's white revolution actually work out for his country? In some cases, Iran did incredibly well economically from the mid-60s to the late-70s. Iran's gross national product, their GNP or GDP, grew at 8% a year from 62 to 70. The U.S., for comparison, has been struggling to put up just 3% since 2006, and China's incredible growth since the 1970s was 10% a year. Iran bumped its growth rate up to 14% a year by 72, and 30% a year by 1974. The money that was driving that growth, of course, came from oil. In the worst kind of irony, the Americans and the British allowed the Shah to reclaim domestic control of production, of oil, and with the price raises under OPEC in the 1970s, his revenues grew accordingly. In 1963, Iran was making half a billion dollars a year from oil. By 1968, it was a billion, and by 1973, it was five billion, 20 billion in 1976, and nearly 40 billion dollars a year in 1977. And while the Shah blew huge amounts of that oil money on palaces for himself and wages and new high-technology weapons for his military, upwards of $10 billion went towards periodic five- to six-year development plans that invested in infrastructure, industry, agriculture, and human resources, which means schools, universities, and scholarship programs. It would be hard to say that some or most of that development wasn't towards the good. But since it was federal money running everything, the Shah's directed development also served to centralize power in his person ever more thoroughly. For example, the third and fourth development plans put $4 billion towards infrastructure. Through the 60s and 70s, hydroelectric dams pushed Iranian kilowatt hours from half a billion to 15 billion yearly. I don't really know what that means, but it's a 3,040% increase. New ports got built, and 13,000 miles of new highways connected nearly all of the villages and cities in the country for the first time since the king's roads of the ancient Persians. Brand new federal roads that federal agents could use to travel to federally funded schools in the remotest villages to check on federally paid teachers to ensure that they were teaching to the federal line. Much of that oil money also went towards the agrarian reform. Like I laid out in my talk about Arbenz's program in Guatemala, an agrarian reform isn't exactly an ongoing national policy or subsidy, like Social Security. It's a corrective measure, meant to rectify a situation that's gone wrong. And that situation, everywhere since the time of the Roman Empire, has been that large, wealthy landholders have used their wealth to continue increasing their estates until only a very small number of people own all of the land, and a massive landless rural population begins to become a problem whether that's because they're poor and exploited, as in Guatemala, 
or because they're poor, exploited, and thus restless and a danger to the regime and the landlords themselves. And the goal of a land reform program is to break up the great estates, generally paying their owners fairly for the land and distributing that land to the rural poor, thereby creating a large, stable class of independent human farmers. The Shah's program was not set up to do that. Loopholes in the laws let many large landholders, including the royal family, hold on to their land as long as they mechanize their farms or move towards cultivating certain cash crops, including tea and nuts. Some 76% of the rural population in Iran had its own farms after the reforms, compared to only 5% beforehand. And while that sounds like a really great improvement, unfortunately the amount of land that was given to them was almost always too small to actually farm it for a living. 17% of the rural population, including the wealthy and the royal family, had self-sustaining farms. But the other 59% had to sell their land to state-run collectives in exchange for shares in those collectives, which instead of creating a large group of middle-class farmers, instead created massive state-run agribusinesses under the direct control of the Shah. The state made out and so did the large landholders, but the peasants remained peasants, and the net effect of the reform, according to Michael Axworthy in his book Revolutionary Iran, was to break the small farmer and destroy life in the village, forcing the rural population into the urban, industrialized workforce. From that book now, quote, The Shah once apparently said to the U.S. ambassador, and now quoting the Shah, Mr. Ambassador, don't you understand? I don't want these villages to survive. I want them to disappear. We can buy food cheaper than they can produce it. I need the people from those villages in our industrial labor force. They must come into the cities and work, unquote, and unquote. And the people the Shah displaced did indeed make their way into the cities. The working class grew fivefold in Iran between 1963 and 77. If you include the urban poor, that number doubles, since even the massive industrial growth brought on by the oil money couldn't keep pace with the population expansion and the people the Shah had forced into the cities from the countryside. This class of people made up just 16% of the Iranian population in 1940 and was edging up towards 50% by the mid-1970s. Now, I know this is starting to get a little bit esoteric and maybe a little bit technical, but hang on. Now, Abrahamian names three other well-defined urban classes from these two decades, the 1960s and the 1970s. The upper class, which totaled no more than 1,000 people in the entire country, was made up of the royal family, the members of the aristocracy who had taken to crony capitalism, and the members of the military and the judiciary who had similarly prospered under Mohammad Reza Shah. The traditional Iranian middle class, meaning the bazaaris, small-scale urban entrepreneurs, and the clergy, didn't grow much but managed to hold on to its power, and in the bazaaris' case, their share of the national retail trade. The last group that Abrahamian describes was the salaried middle class, which predictably exploded under the Shah's development programs. Doctors, teachers, engineers, all the gears that you needed to make the new industrialized Iranian society run. So, despite that all this was going on pretty much according to plan, another effect of the Shah's revolution was to massively increase the two classes which had given him the most trouble in the past, the white-collar intelligentsia and urban labor. Abrahamian says that one of the reasons he sees for the Iranian revolution that would eventually consume the Shah's kingdom was that there was no corresponding political development to parallel the economic kind that was going on. Now, what does he mean there? Well, when you go through highly disruptive periods, really any time, but especially in periods like this, the citizenry needs a kind of political release valve to keep from getting restive. In a democracy, that valve is largely made up of elections and institutions in government and civil society. 
when you're pissed off or worried about the situation in the United States, you can do a million things to express and act on that anger and doubt. You can run for office, you can call your congressman, you can write a play, you can talk to your book club, you can send a letter to the editor, you can go to a rally. If you don't feel helpless to express yourself or affect the society around you, you generally feel less apt to try to tear it down. In the Shah's Iran, Abrahamian's right in that there were none of these outlets. Poets and writers and artists and newspapermen were so well and so thoroughly persecuted by Savak that by the mid-1970s, it wasn't a case of nobody being able to speak out without being punished, but of nobody being willing to speak out at all, even with their friends and neighbors. But where I don't agree with Abrahamian's take on this is that I think the Shah did encourage some political development, and that was in the form of the bureaucracy. From one of Abrahamian's own books, quote, The Shah's expansion of the state bureaucracy was impressive. He increased the number of fully-fledged ministries from 12 to 20. By mid-1975, the state employed more than 300,000 civil servants, as well as one million white and blue-collar workers. The Prime Minister's Office, which oversaw the plan and budget organization, as well as religious foundations, employed 24,000 people. The Interior Ministry, with 21,000, redrew the administrative map of the country, increasing the number of provinces from 10 to 23 and subdividing them into 400 districts, each with a mayor, village headman, or rural council, appointed from the center. For the first time in all of Iranian history, the arm of the state reached not just into the cities and towns, but also into faraway villages and rural hamlets. By 1977, the state was directly paying one of every two employees." Unquote. From an anthropologist that Abrahamian cites in another book, quote, One is amazed at the high level of centralization achieved within the last decade. The government now interferes in practically all aspects of daily life. Land is contracted for cash by the government. Fruits get sprayed, crops fertilized, animals fed, beehives set up, carpets woven, goods sold, babies born, populations controlled, women organized, religion taught, and diseases cured, all by the intervention of the government, unquote. So while the Shah certainly wasn't giving the people any release valves with which they could express their discontent or affect the way that the country was being run, he was using his oil money and the industrialization of the country to greatly expand the power and control of the state. Not by, or not just by, expanding the security forces, but by making sure that the government was an intimate part of his people's lives. Like that quote from the anthropologist laid out, if you wanted to do anything in the Shah's Iran, you had to do it through the government, and in effect, through him. People who wanted to get along and go along could be rewarded, and people who wanted to resist, even in the smallest of ways, could be reported on and frozen out. It was far from what we normally think of as political development, but in its own way just as effective at corralling dissent among the people. There is a very specific and special relationship between me and my people. As long as this special relationship exists between myself and my people, I don't see where somebody should uh, or could step in and, and break it. Of course, the Shah didn't ignore his other, more traditional methods of control. Savak continued to grow, both in full-time agents and in informants among the population, and the Shah also set up an imperial inspectorate and something called the J2 Bureau. The inspectorate was supposed to watch Savak while the J2 monitored both, and Savak, I imagine, kept its eyes on everyone. If the Shah could keep his agencies suspicious and jealous of each other, they'd be much less of a threat to him. 
This is reportedly the way that Donald Trump is running his White House, and the way, starting with the firings of Sally Yates and James Comey, that he'd like to run the intelligence agencies in the United States. Savak's growing power was paralleled by its cruelty. This was a relatively stable period for Iran, but it only stayed that way because the agency became so efficient in rooting out even the slightest hint of dissent. Robert Fisk, the Irish journalist who worked for the Times of London and then the Independent in the Middle East, laid out how it did so in his book, The Great War for Civilization. Quote, A permanent secret U.S. mission was attached to Savak headquarters, which we learned from documents uncovered after the 79 revolution. Methods of interrogation included, apart from the conventional electric wires attached to genitals, beating on the soles of the feet and nail extraction, rape and cooking, the latter being a self-explanatory form of suffering in which the victim was strapped to a bed of wire that was then electrified to become a red-hot toaster. Mohammed Haikal, that greatest of Egyptian journalists and once editor of Al-Aram and the former confidant of Nasser, has described how Savak filmed the torture of a young Iranian woman, how she was stripped naked, and how cigarettes were then used to burn her nipples. According to Haikal, the film was later distributed by the CIA to other intelligence agencies working for the American-sponsored regimes around the world, including Taiwan, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Colonel Nasiri, the man who had served Mossadegh with the Shah's eviction order, controlled Savak for almost the last 15 years of the monarch's reign, and employed up to 60,000 agents. At one point, it was believed that a third of the male population of Iran were in some way involved, either directly or as occasional paid or blackmailed informants. They included diplomats, civil servants, mullahs, actors, writers, oil executives, workers, peasants, the poor and the unemployed, an entire society corrupted by power and fear, unquote. You know, I'm always trying to address the why of these things now. Why would the U.S. support the Shah? Why would our CIA have men in every torture room in the Middle East and Latin America? But while the listeners who originally badgered me to ask why our policy was the way it was, that is, to explain that the Shah was an important ally or that the generals were staving off the communists in Guatemala, I'm more inclined to ask why do you care about any of that when this was the reality of what was going on? And how could anyone see this or know about this and still think that we were in any sense doing the right thing or that we were on the right side? But if that the Shah was an important export market for Northrop Grumman and Bechtel assuages your conscience, well, maybe sit down and wonder why that is for a while. I'm moving on now, but this is not the last that we will hear about Savak. You're saying you do what every country does. Sure, If why torture not? is necessary, you torture. Not the torture in the old sense of torturing people, twisting their arms and doing this and that. But there are intelligent way, ways of uh, questioning now. Well, they talk about psychological and physical torture. Physical, I don't believe. I talk... Not to- anymore. Maybe in the old days, maybe. I talked just today to a man whom I believe who told about torture. He was tortured? Yes. And you believe that he was tortured? Yes. How many years ago? Within, I want to be very careful, not yesterday. Ah, well, maybe. Despite all the repression that was going on, there was still a very low-key resistance. Uh, The part of it that spoke openly living abroad 
and the part in Iran publishing oblique, suggestive, and apparently non-political books and lectures. The constitutionalists of all stripes, though, suffered a moral if not a material blow when Mossadegh died, still under house arrest in 1967. The most important of these opposition parties or organizations, according to Abrahamian, was the liberation movement, the one I mentioned in the last episode. The party or kind of looser coalition created by Barzagan, Mehdi Barzagan, and Mahmoud Talakani. These two men and their followers managed to attract many young, Western-educated Iranians, both inside and outside of the government. They maintained strong ties to the clergy, including and especially the Ayatollah Khomeini, and brought them together philosophically, if not physically, in a surprisingly ecumenical effort to, quote, synthesize Islam and Western science, unquote. Importantly, they weren't trying to synthesize Islam and Western culture. And many of these people, despite that they went to school in the U.S. or in Europe, were also worried about that West sickness I mentioned in the last episode. It's the effective elements of what they learned abroad in terms of economics and political science and the hard sciences that they were trying to square with Shia Islam. And not only the things that they learned in class, many or most of them, especially those who studied in Paris, ended up reading the French-Algerian nationalist Franz Fanon, and the Argentinian doctor-turned-revolutionary, Che Guevara, along with Mao and Marx and Vo Nguyen Giap, the French-educated history professor who led the North Vietnamese to victory first against the French and then the United States. What you may already know, but which is worth mentioning, is that American and especially French college campuses in the 1960s and early 1970s were this incredible ferment of revolutionary ideologies and liberation philosophy, much of which was written by people who were winning their struggles for independence and freedom against colonialism and homegrown tyranny all over the world. You can see how it would be a heady atmosphere for these intelligent young Iranians and how they would want to be able to take it and make it applicable in their own homeland. And since Barzagan and Talakani had already laid down a framework for a kind of socialist, liberationist Islam, it came together like matched puzzle pieces. And I'm not going to get into each of their names because you don't need to know all of them and because I don't know how to pronounce anything in Farsi anyway, is that once they decided that things were getting untenable in Iran and virtually everyone who stayed, even the ones writing the most vague, subtle stuff, ended up in prison, huge numbers of them ended up in the United States. They organized Iranian student committees and coalitions and organizations and wrote for what any self-respecting historian would call emigre organs, but which were in effect opposition fanzines written by and for this tiny, tight-knit community of regime haters. And they went to college in the United States, got degrees and doctorates, and through the 1960s and 70s, along with and as part of the protest movements in the U.S. in those years, trained themselves to run the revolution and the regime that they would take over in radical opposition to the United States in 1979. In one example, from Abrahamian, quote, Chamran, an Iranian, who in 1979 was named defense minister, had a doctorate in civil engineering from Berkeley. Active in the California branch of the Islamic Student Society, Chamran left for the Middle East in the mid-1960s and received guerrilla training from both the Egyptian army and Amal, the Shiite militia in southern Lebanon. Entizam, another Iranian Berkeley graduate, was an early member of the liberation movement. Blacklisted because of his student activities, Antizam had been sent by his father to California to complete his engineering degree. While there, he was active within the Confederation as well as the Islamic Student Society. After the revolution, he became a deputy prime minister. Unquote. 
if I'm lucky enough to keep this cast going on for that long, we'll eventually make our way to Beirut, and you'll learn all about Amal and the Sabra and Shatila camps, and how Syria and Israel and the United States tore that country apart for a good couple of decades. But for right now, I want to get a little bit more in-depth on what Talakani and the Liberation Movement, and another theologian named Shariati, were actually doing. Because it's such a diametrically opposed version of Islam to the one we're always presented by our politicians and the internet and, well, basically everyone. But before I can do that, I've got to explain Shia Islam to you. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in this by any any means, and most of the Islamic history that I've studied is from the perspective of the Spanish during the Reconquista, which is like knowing the history of Christianity by having been one of the spectators in the Colosseum who stoned Telemachus to death. So please, after I give you this version, please go out and double check me and read about it on your own. Now that said, the Prophet Muhammad died in 632, and somebody at that time had to succeed him. This was both a religious and a political crisis because Muhammad himself had convinced Medina and conquered Mecca, and the Ummah, the faithful, would go on to form the largest empire in the world at the time. And by the way, if you're a Christian or whatever feeling smug about that, Christianity was spreading itself by force of arms in the 7th century and would continue to do so long after the Muslim conquests had died out. So anyway, a lot of Muhammad's followers thought that he'd marked out his son-in-law, Ali, to succeed him and become the caliph, which means successor. But another one of the Prophet's closest followers, Abu Bakr, ends up in charge. And as the conquest went on, the official caliphs, as conquerors tend to do, fell into first modest and then increasingly lavish worldly trappings and delights. And the folks who had still chosen to follow Ali, with the advantage of being the losers, saw themselves as the only part of the faithful still staying true to the self-denying Spartan ways of Muhammad and his original band of followers. So, 50 years later, in 680, Ali's son Hussein leads a revolt, but expected allies don't turn up, and the forces of the official caliph massacre Ali and most of his family at the Battle of Karbala, which is why that city, along with Najaf, which houses Ali's tomb, are Shia Islam's holy cities. Until Karbala, Shiism, and the word Shia comes from Shia Ali, meaning the partisans or followers of Ali, was more of a fan club than a sect of its own. But after Karbala, it becomes more and more distinct a denomination, one whose founding myth was the death of the founder at the hands of a barbarous, tyrannical usurper. And that tradition of self-denial, resistance to tyranny and persecution, and the expectation not of physical reward, but of martyrdom at the hands of authority, went on to flavor, or define, the faith of the followers of Ali ever since. So again, read about that, and make sure you know about it from someone other than me. But anyway, quoting from Axworthy now, quote, In these circumstances, new patterns of thought emerged among the Shia ulama, or clergy. One school, the Akbari, argued for a theological position that each individual Muslim had in the Quran and in the Hadith, which was the written tradition of the twelve descendants of Ali, all that he needed for his guidance, and that there was only a limited place, if any, for the interpretation of religious law based on reason, which is called ijtihad. This is a little bit like the sola scriptura position developed by Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation, and most closely adhered to by southern U.S. fundamentalist Christians. The Akbari position was close to the traditional line of Sunni Islam on those same points. Now the other school, the Usuli, argued, on the contrary, that ijtihad, 
the interpretation of religious law based on reason was necessary to reinterpret religious law afresh in every generation, in the light of new circumstances and new understanding, and that only trained, learned ulama could be trusted to do this. By the end of the 18th century, as a greater degree of order was brought to Iran and to its Shiite population by the first Qajar Shahs, the Usulis were winning the argument, and a new arrangement emerged according to which ordinary Muslims gave their allegiance, and often a portion of the material earnings, to a class of specially qualified ulama called mojtahids, a kind of religious lawyer qualified to perform ijtihad." Unquote. Ayatollah, which means sign of God, marked out Khomeini and Talakani as especially qualified and respected mojtahids in the 1960s. So what you've got in Shiite Iran in the 20th century is a lot of well-respected clergymen, both liberal and conservative, in opposition to the regime whose religious tradition was both anti-tyrannical and set up to reinterpret religious law in reaction to present circumstances. So while in Latin America, Jesuit and other priests had to pretty much invent a new strain of Catholicism in liberation theology, in opposition to their own hierarchy, that same thing, by no stretch of the imagination, is what the Iranian ulama was supposed to be doing. So, Shariati, Ali Shariati. And I hope you find this as fascinating as I do, because we're going to end up hearing a lot from and about this guy. Born in 1933, Ali Shariati is the son of a militant, socialist, low-level cleric. After studying, he teaches for a while as a young man and ends up studying political philosophy in Paris while the Cuban and Algerian revolutions were ongoing. He corresponded with Franz Fanon and translated Fanon, Sartre, or Sartre and Che Guevara into Farsi. Then from 1967 to 1973, he lectured in Tehran at what was basically a seminary, and this is where he and his ideas became famous and well-loved. From Abrahamian, quote, To pacify the censors, Shariati spoke in allegories, used words with double meanings, and often avoided direct reference to immediate issues. His works had only one clear message, that Islam was not a conservative, fatalistic creed, as charged by many secular intellectuals, nor an apolitical personal faith, as claimed by some of the reactionary clergy, but rather a revolutionary ideology that permeated all spheres of life, especially politics, and that inspires true believers to fight against all forms of oppression, exploitation, and social injustice. The Prophet, Shariati stressed, had come to establish not just a community, but a Muslim ummah, a dynamic community in constant motion towards progress, and not just a monotheistic religion, but a social order that would be completely united by virtue, a striving towards justice, equity, human brotherhood, public ownership of wealth, and most important of all, a classless society. Moreover, the Shia imams, especially Hussein, had raised the banner of revolt because their contemporary rulers, the corrupt caliphs and the court elites, had betrayed the ummat and given up the goals of the new social order. Thus, for Shariati, the Muharram passion plays depicting Hussein's martyrdom at Karbala that all Shiites reenacted every June contained one major lesson that all Shiites, irrespective of time and place, had a duty to oppose, to resist, and even to rebel against overwhelming odds in order to eradicate their contemporary ills." Unquote. So you can see how that kind of teaching would lend itself to opposition to the Shah. You can also read very clear parallels between that and liberation theology, and even between Shariati and the Enlightenment philosophy of opposition laid out in our own declaration. Quote, that to secure these inalienable rights, governments are instituted among men, 
deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. When a long train of abuses and usurpations evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government." Unquote. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the philosophy or theology that Shariati was laying out was cool, man. Just real cool, in the same way that liberation theology was cool to me. And more than that, that although we tend to view Islam as a monolith, and the Iranian revolution as this radical black box of unintelligible and fundamentalist religion, that it was actually this melange of different and incredibly sympathetic strains of thought, and that the whole show was eventually co-opted by Khomeini, belies its original basis in the sensitive, articulate youth who were looking for a fully Iranian revolutionary ideal. The other thing I was kind of playing around with when I first read all this was that any religion can apparently be made to back up revolutionary or Marxist thought. But then I put that claim down for a while, and when I picked it back up, the thing had flipped itself around. Marxism or revolutionary thought can be read into most world religions because most world religions, in Genesis, were revolutionary. Why else would they spread, or, in the words of St. Ignatius, set the world on fire? Christ was a radical. Buddha a radical, Mohammed a radical, and all of them coincidentally communist in the most basic sense of the term. And liberation theology and shariati Shiism go hand in hand because they recognize the essential truth of Christo-Islamic texts, that they have a preferential option for the poor, and they spit on the rich and the powerful. There's only one right way to read the first shall be last, and the rich man eye of the needle, and it's at the same time both astounding that mainstream Christianity and Islam can blow off all of that give everything to the poor and live as I live stuff, and totally predictable that every time somebody tries to revive it, whether in Guatemala or Iran, that the powers that be will very shortly stamp it out. Not much longer on this topic now, but in Shariati's own words, quote, It is not enough to say that we must return to Islam. We have to specify which Islam that of Abu Zar or that of Marwan the ruler. Both are Islam, but there is a huge difference between the two. One is the Islam of the caliphate, of the palace, and of the rulers. The other is the Islam of the people, of the exploited, and of the poor. Which Islam do you advocate? Moreover, it is not enough to say that you advocate an Islam that is concerned with the poor. The caliph said the same. True Islam is more than concern with the poor. It strives for justice, equality, and the elimination of poverty. We have to clarify that we want the Islam of Abu Zar, not that of the royal palace, of justice and true leadership, not that of the caliphs, class stratification and aristocratic privileges, of freedom, progress, and awareness, not that of captivity, stagnation, and silence. We want the Islam of fighters, not that of spiritual leaders, the Islam of the Ali family, and not of the Safavid dynasty." Unquote. Shariati levels the same criticisms at the conservative ulama that both he and Franz Fanon laid at the feet of the bureaucratized communist parties, that by institutionalizing they had lost the revolutionary fervor and the impetus that gave them their legitimacy in the first place. Shiism was the religious parallel to the fidelista concept of revolution, and the binding together of the clergy with state power in Iran had in his opinion turned it from a revolutionary force into a statist and oppressive one. 
Unsurprisingly, given what we just heard, Shariati gradually developed a huge following among the Iranian intelligentsia and the masses of middle-class, college-educated youth who benefited just enough from the regime to be incensed at the limitations within it that they then encountered. So where does Khomeini fit into all of this, and how does his theology square against Shariati's? Well, he was still in Najaf, just across the border in Iraq, still sending out broadcasts and cassette tapes, and still for the most part avoiding conservative themes and sticking to topics that were broadly popular, even among the secular population, like corruption and inequality of wealth. But he was also beginning to develop a concept that he called a jurist's guardianship, something that also grew out of the Usuli notion of the clergy reinterpreting religious law for every generation. The original Iranian constitution of the 1910s had specified that a council of ulama would advise the majlis and hold veto power over the laws that it passed. Neither the constitutionalists nor the shahs had been much interested in actually setting that up, and the council was never formed. What Khomeini was working on was a step further, a country that would retain its constitutional trappings, like a prime minister and a president, but which would be run by Islamic clergymen jurists according to their interpretation of Sharia. This was pretty different from what Shariati was imagining. He had been wary of even giving the lectures because he felt that any involvement of the ulama in politics would necessarily lead to their corruption and to the corruption of Islam, just as it had happened under the caliphs. What he was imagining was that your job as a cleric would be to lead the people always in opposition to the state, in proportion to the level of injustice and corruption that it had reached. The ulama, in other words, would be a kind of permanent revolutionary force contained within the religious community, a living theology of liberation, constantly training the people to watch their government. Khomeini was angling for something far more dangerous, and far more less likely, historically speaking, to turn out either well or piously. As predictable as was the growth of his following, Savak came for Shariati in 1972, and he suffered in their prisons until 75, when they released him to house arrest. He escaped to Great Britain in 1977, but died that same year, either as a result of lingering trauma for his time with the intelligence service, or, as many Iranians thought and still think, at the hands of Savak directly. You've got some documents here. Yes. Why don't you show us what they have? You got these from the students at the... At the embassy in Tehran, the U.S. embassy in Tehran. These are documents that were released by the students at the embassy and they were released to the media and yet they've been suppressed. I don't think that people have really gotten a chance to read through these because they're very incriminating. This is not unusual though, or really not surprising that there are CIA people over there, there are CIA people and intelligence people in every embassy. Oh no, I don't think it's a big surprise. See, the CIA in Iran was not just reading newspapers or doing this and that, they were actually engaging in in sabotage, engaging in during the time of the Shah that they would follow Iranian dissidents they would turn them in and these people, you know, were tortured to death or put in prison and what have you. But when I talked to the students at the embassy... There were two things that inaugurated the 1970s in Iran, totally independent of each other, or almost. The first was that although public opinion in the United States had held since the Tet Offensive in 1968 that America would lose the war in Vietnam, and despite that Nixon had beat out Hubert Humphrey for the presidency running on a platform of immediate withdrawal from Indochina, Tricky Dick would get the country and its finances further embroiled in Saigon, and any thought of trying to restrain or rein in the Shah was, and would be, totally absent in Washington. The other event, the more visible one, and the one that the Shah's people couldn't help but see, was the Persepolis Party. 
The Shah had been thinking since the mid-1950s of throwing a birthday party in honor of monarchy in Iran, and while he apparently hadn't felt himself for the country ready then or the 1960s, he settled on the 15th and 16th of October 1971, and on Persepolis, the ruined city in the desert that had been the seat of the ancient Persian Empire. From Axworthy's book, quote, The occasion was anomalous in a variety of ways. It had to be 2,500 years of monarchy in Iran rather than of Iranian monarchy because there had been an awkward period between the 7th and 15th centuries when most of the monarchs were not Iranian. They also dated the event from 529 BC, a year before the death of Cyrus the Great, which is to say, no year at all. Why then? Cyrus had been a king for perhaps 30 years already, and there had been many Iranian kings before him. But the date was not meant to be taken too precisely, and the point was that the Shah wanted to connect himself and his monarchy with Cyrus, as the founder of the first great Persian empire. He wanted to assert the strength and enduring character of the Pahlavi dynasty when monarchy as an institution was menaced by republicanism and communism internationally, and when some in Iran, notably Shariati, were asserting Islam rather than monarchy as the true center of Iranian identity. Perhaps, too, he felt the provisional, parvenu nature of the Pahlavi claim to royal blood. Over the two days of the celebration, the event went smoothly. Television images of an impressively grand parade of history at Persepolis, with thousands of participants dressed up as the soldiers of the ancient Medes and Persians, were broadcast around the world by satellite. Heads of state of many of the most important countries of the world, along with senior representatives of many others, were wined and dined. The catering was laid on not by an Iranian firm, but by Maxims of Paris in three huge air-conditioned tents and 59 smaller ones, and 25,000 bottles of wine were imported for the event. Rumors of the overall cost ranged from $100 million to $300 million, unquote. Displays of great pomp and circumstance have always been part and parcel of the mystery and glory of monarchy, but the Pahlavis had a short, checkered history in Iran. Upjumped from nothing and twice-hated dictators, extravagant and self-aggrandizing displays of wealth in one of the least equal and, among its poor, poorest countries in the world, could have done little but provoke resentment among the Iranian people. Making the insult even greater was that the exacerbating effect that the Shah's white revolution had been having on the underlying problems of inequality in Iran had only accelerated through the 1960s and into the 1970s, as cities filled up with foreigners and the beneficiaries of the Shah's largesse, and their outskirts grew thick with slums and shantytowns full of refugees from the countryside, who couldn't find work in the urban centers either. The cities, and especially Tehran, were set up unintentionally, but effectively to generate disgust on the part of those large, newly urban masses of the poor. They came from the conservative, religious countryside, and while it ran that they still recognized continued to exist in the city, in the bazaars, in the mosques, in the smell of roasting street vendor mutton, and in the calls to prayer, all of that old Persia lived in the shadow of the new skyscrapers, of the neon glow of Coca-Cola signs, and with an earshot of the American pop music drifting out of nightclubs and discotheques, in the same way that unveiled, miniskirted Iranian women tended to drift out of them on the arms of American contractors and servicemen. Think about that situation how you want, and I've entered and left bars playing American music with Mexican women on my Peace Corps-sponsored arm down here, but you can see the impression it would have made on those new city dwellers, especially since both the liberals like Talakani and Shariati and the conservatives like Khomeini had developed the framework of West Toxification with which to think about it. 
But all the same, how could things be that bad for the urban poor or the working class when so many billions of dollars of oil money had poured into Iran in those years? Well, presaging Reagan, the Shah's regime had never made any serious effort towards bottom-up development and had instead relied on the principle of trickle-down economics, where handing money to the already wealthy will by some magic then benefit the poor. The court-connected elite of Iran had petrodollars channeled towards them, and with that cash they started factories, companies, and agribusinesses. And somehow, the magic of wishful thinking, just like it wouldn't work in Reagan's America, didn't transmit that money down to the man on the street. From Abrahamian, quote, The White Revolution and the subsequent oil boom produced widespread resentments by drastically raising but not meeting public expectations. It was true that social programs made strides in improving educational and health facilities, but it was equally true that after two decades, Iran still had one of the worst infant mortality rates in the Middle East. An American journalist in Tehran named Francis Fitzgerald, who we heard from in the last episode, said at the time that, quote, Iran is basically worse off than a country like Syria that has had neither oil nor political stability. The reason for this is simply that the Shah has never made a serious attempt at development. The wealth of the country has gone into private cars rather than buses, into consumer goods rather than public health, and into the salaries of soldiers and policemen rather than that of the teachers, unquote, and unquote. If it's not clear yet, how does all this inequality and poverty and aversion to Western imported or even colonial cultural invasion relate to what I'm going on about? Well, the point of these shows is to set you up like an expert to understand why the bits and pieces that will make up the Islamic revolution move and operate the way they do once we get there. Franz Fanon, the Algerian nationalist, writes in The Wretched of the Earth about how the armed struggle against colonialism will begin and how it will pierce into the suburban and urban districts. Quote, The men that the growing population of the country districts and colonial expropriation have brought to desert their family holdings circle tirelessly around the different towns, hoping that one day or another they will be allowed inside. It is within this mass of humanity, this people of the shanty towns, at the core of the lumpen proletariat, that the rebellion will find its urban spearhead. For the lumpen proletariat, that horde of starving men, uprooted from their tribe and their clan, constitutes one of the most spontaneous and the most radically revolutionary forces of a colonized people." Unquote. In other words, the Shah was building an army, but not one that would be on his side. They already had their Marats and their Robespierres among the clergy and the émigrés in the liberation movement. Mohammed Reza was giving them their sans-culottes. And anti-Americanism was becoming integral to their feeling. From Axworthy, quote, A radical female student of the time wrote, and quoting her now, Most of the Americans who lived in Iran behaved in a way that revealed their sense of self-importance and superiority. They had come to expect extra respect, even deference, from all Iranians, from shoeshine boy to Shah. In our country, American lifestyles had come to be imposed as an ideal, the ultimate goal. Americanism was the model. American popular culture, books, magazines, film, had swept over our country like a flood. This cultural aggression challenged the self-identity of people like us. This was the idol which had taken shape within Iranian society. We found ourselves wondering, is there any room for our own culture? Unquote, unquote. It's a sentiment that we ought to understand, given that a statistically small number of poor immigrants from Latin America has thrown us into decades of hand-wringing over the American identity and the English language. I think, though, and I could imagine how much worse that backlash might be if it weren't the poorest and the most vulnerable. 
but the most wealthy, legally immune representatives of the foreign power that were turning us slowly into a cultural, economic, and military colony. Well, here we are in Tehran, the exciting capital of Iran. I wanted this new Iran Air 747 special performance jet in New York City. The non-stop flight took exactly 11 hours and 15 minutes, and we flew one mile higher than other jets. So we had an unusually smooth flight. I enjoyed the excellent food, the first-run movie, Persian hospitality, and even slept a little. Now refreshed and relaxed, I'm ready to explore Tehran and all the other pleasures that can be found in the land of a thousand and one nights. Let Iran Air take you on a journey to adventure you will never forget. It's romantic, exciting, breathtaking Iran. Iran Air. We take you there, we take you back. There was another and probably a better reason for Iranians and the rest of the Middle East to be building up resentment towards the United States in the 1970s, and that was arms sales. Britain, since they had felt the need to build coaling stations on the way to India, and even more so after the discovery of oil in Arabia and Iran, had kept bases in and policed the traffic of the Persian Gulf, defending supplies of petrochemicals from regional conflict and other imperial powers. In the 1970s, the British found themselves financially unable and politically unwilling to keep up the commitment, and the Shah volunteered to take over. The United States, happy to pass the duty off to a client state, agreed to this, and Nixon and Henry Kissinger, then Secretary of State, flew to Tehran in May of 1972. Their meetings with the Shah were short, but were enough for them to promise him that he would be able to buy any and every quantity and type of weapon from the United States, short of the atomic bomb. The quadrupling of oil prices under OPEC shortly afterwards gave him the means to do so. Nixon's virtually unlimited offer of arms was in the spirit of the times. As Emma Rothschild reported in a piece for the New York Review of Books in 1975, the United States was experiencing a decade-long boom in arms sales. Total U.S. exports were worth just shy of $4 billion in 1973, but by the time she'd written the article, two years later, arms sales had ballooned to $9.5 billion, which was more than the entire world's total of sales had been in 1973. Arms made up one-tenth of all U.S. exports by 1975, and were not losing ground. Why these huge increases, and why in the early 1970s? Well, the U.S. had been maintaining a massive arms industry since the end of the Second World War, in the interest of maintaining military parity with the Russians. And when we got involved in the Korean War, and then got involved and ramped up our involvement in Vietnam, there was an even larger smorgasbord of government dollars to be had on the part of Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and all the other manufacturers and defense contractors that made and still make up our military-industrial complex. When Nixon began the so-called Vietnamization of the war in 1973 and had to draw down troop levels before then, those industries lost their major buyer and they had to look elsewhere in the world for a market. And that reorientation of sales squared with what's become known as the Nixon Doctrine, where, rather than putting our soldiers or our fighter pilots in other countries, we put guns in the hands of their soldiers and cockpits around their pilots. 
What should have, but may not have been obvious to us at the time, and what should be unavoidable to us now that we've fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and Lebanon and Syria, the very freedom fighters that we previously armed, is that selling guns is bad business. From Rothschild again, quote, The arms bonanza may be the sign of a lasting change in the world arms economy. It may mark the beginning of a long expansion in U.S. arms exports in developing countries. Such an expansion would be perhaps the most dangerous of all the recent changes in the world economy. It would certainly be the change which is least amenable to political and public control. Few seem to realize that the arms sold by U.S. and European companies are often resold after they arrive in the country that buys them. Iran exports U.S. fighter planes to Ethiopia and to Jordan with U.S. government approval. Jordan sells its British Tiger Cat air defense system to a Liechtenstein corporation for shipment to South Africa. Unquote. Of course, we know now that Rothschild was right in her prediction, and that the boom in U.S. arms exports would never tail off, not even after the end of the Cold War. In 2015, the U.S. sold $80 billion worth of weapons, fully half of all arms sales in the entire world in that year. For decades, as part of a well-thought-out policy, the Soviets sold or gave away AK-47 assault rifles and rocket-propelled grenades to virtually every country in the Third World, with the generally correct suspicion that those weapons would eventually be turned on U.S. servicemen or their allies. Since the 1970s, we've been doing the same thing to ourselves, giving them means of incredible destruction to regimes that otherwise would never be able to produce them. And if, for the political realists among you, it's not bad enough that we sold them to regimes whose express purpose in buying them was then to immediately point them at their own people, maybe it will be bad enough that they almost invariably ended up pointed at us. Despite the arms sales and the official attitudes towards Iran, the Cambridge history alleges that there was a sea change going on. Quote, Yet even during the first half of the 1970s, doubts were being expressed abroad regarding the premises upon which the Shah's great civilization rested. In the United States, in the wake of the Vietnam War, there was an increasing skepticism as to the desirability of supporting repressive dictatorships which lacked popular backing, despite the assumption that the Shah's land reforms had won him widespread support at home. He certainly received a share of the blame for the increase in oil prices which led to the inflation of the mid-70s. Moreover, after Watergate, the American press developed a sharp nose for smelling out unsavory goings-on, and corporate dealings with Iran, especially in the area of weapons sales, came under close scrutiny. Gradually, criticism of the Shah's regime, formerly deemed irresponsible and not conducive to Western interests, became more outspoken. In particular, accounts of internal repression and the torture and execution of opponents by Savak began to receive widespread attention. Amnesty International's 1975 report on the treatment of political prisoners in Iran was extensively covered in the European and American press, and in March 1975, an article in the Sunday Times of London reported that, quote, No country in the world has a worse record in human rights than Iran, unquote, and unquote. Now, something that I've mentioned on the blog, and which was the topic of the third SFD short, is an American penchant for historical forgetfulness. Here we have in black and white the Cambridge history of Iran noting that there was a period in the mid-1970s when the American public started to wonder about the morality and efficacy of supporting dictatorial regimes abroad. And you'd think that, 
having made the discovery that it's both unsavory and ineffective in preserving American interests, we would, going forward, not do it again. But one of the most incredible aspects of American diplomacy that struck me during the Arab Spring was that it was a well-established and virtually never-contested given that Obama would sit out, for example, the Egyptian Revolution, not even supporting the protests rhetorically, since the then-Egyptian dictator Hosni Mubarak was an American ally. It's not even that we forget from one generation to the next. President Obama was alive in the mid-1970s. It's that we forget every five or six years. And while Emma Rothschild's impassioned muckraking of the arms industry and its exports through the 70s were some of the most moving journalism I've ever read, and apparently reflective of a widespread liberal opposition to the practice, Nothing seems to have stopped either Gerald Ford or even Jimmy Carter from blithely continuing to sell weapons to the Shah right up until the revolution, and, elsewhere in the world, to the brutal military government in Guatemala, to Pinochet in Chile, to Saddam Hussein in Iraq, or to the Contras in Nicaragua. And like I've said, we're setting records every year now, and I don't know if I've ever seen anybody in today's press even remember to be worried about it, except in a very specific context, like in Syria. And, by the way, we're still selling weapons to Guatemala. I think the talks were extremely constructive. Uh, we attach great importance to our relationship with Iran, as well as to the uh, uh, crucial role that Iran plays for the security and balance of this entire region. Something that I didn't mention, and that I won't really get into because it won't be important until the next episode, is that there was briefly a guerrilla movement in Iran. It was always small-scale and at every step pretty effectively pursued by the forces of the Shah. But they organized along principles similar to those of Shariati and Talakani, with a couple of groups more aligned with Khomeini. I bring them up now only to say that they and every other mode voice, member, and maybe even thought of opposition and oblique dissent were wiped out by the mid-1970s by the increasingly effective hands of Savak. According to Amnesty International's 1976 report, the number of political prisoners in secret sites and torture jails could have been anywhere from 25,000 to 100,000 people at the time. One of those was a man named Reza Barahani, who we heard from the last episode, and after he was let out and then escaped to the United States, he published a series of articles, also in the New York Review of Books, which were part of what helped to turn public opinion in the United States around on Iran, as described just now by the Cambridge History. I'm going to let him speak for himself now, and it'll take a while. Quote, Let me tell you briefly why I was arrested and tortured. A book of mine had been published in 1972 when I was in the U.S. as a visiting professor of English and comparative literature. The book was called Masculine History, and it dealt with the causes of social and historical disintegration in Iran, the oppression of women, the problem of Iranian nationalities, and ways through which some of the crises in our culture could be solved. Upon returning to Iran, I published three other articles dealing with the same problems. One of them was called The Culture of the Oppressor and the Culture of the Oppressed, which discussed the problem of alienation and nationalities. I was arrested on September 11, 1973, tortured the next day, and stayed in the Comité prison for 102 days. I found out later that I was released because of international pressure, especially pressure from writers and poets in this country, meaning the United States. The torture on the second day of my arrest consisted of 75 blows with a plated wire whip at the soles of my feet. 
I was whipped on my hands as well, and the head torturer took the small finger of my left hand and broke it, saying that he was going to break my fingers one by one, one each day. Then I was told that if I did not confess, my wife and 13-year-old daughter would be raped in front of my eyes. All this time, I was being beaten from head to toe. Then a pistol was held at my temple by the head torturer, Dr. Azudi, and he prepared to shoot. In fact, the sound of shooting came, and I fainted. When I opened my eyes, I was being interrogated by someone who called himself Dr. Rezvan. The interrogation, combined with psychological torture and sometimes additional beating, went on for 102 days until I was let out. There were also two other iron beds, one on top of the other, in another corner of the room. These last two, I later learned, were used to burn the backs, generally the buttocks, of the prisoners. They tie you to the upper bed on your back, and with the heat coming from a torch or a small heater, they burn your back in order to extract information. Sometimes the burning is extended to the spine, as a result of which paralysis is certain. There were also all sizes of whips hanging from nails on the walls. Electric prods stood on little stools. The nail-plucking instrument stood on the far side. I could only recognize these devices upon later remembrance and through the descriptions of others, as well as by personal experience. The gallows stood on the other side. They hang you upside down and then someone beats you with a club on your legs, or uses the electrical prod on your chest or your genitals, or they lower you down, pull your pants up, and one of them tries to rape you while you're still hanging upside down. Evidently great rapists with very ingenious imaginative powers have invented this style to satisfy their thirst for sadism. There were in the other torture rooms worse instruments, which other prisoners would describe. The weight cuffs that break your shoulders in less than two hours of horrible torture. The electric shock instrument, apparently a recent introduction into the Iranian torture industry. And the pressure device which imposes pressure upon the skull to the extent that you either tell them what they want or they let your bones break into pieces. Most of the horrible instruments were located on the second floor. I was not taken there, but the office of my interrogator, Dr. Rezvan, was next to this chamber, and one day when he was called to another office for some sort of consultation, I walked into the room and glanced round it and then went back. It resembles an ancient Egyptian tomb and is reserved for those suspected of being terrorists or accused of having made attempts on the life of the Shah or a member of the royal family. Not every prisoner goes through the same process, but generally this is what happens to a prisoner of the first importance. First, he is beaten by several torturers at once, with sticks and clubs. If he doesn't confess, he is hanged upside down and beaten. If this doesn't work, he is raped. And if he still shows signs of resistance, he is given electric shock, which turns him into a howling dog. And if he is still obstinate, his nails and sometimes all his teeth are pulled out. And in certain exceptional cases, a hot iron rod is put into one side of his face to force its way to the other side burning the entire mouth and the tongue. A young man was killed in this way. At other times, he is thrown on his stomach on the iron bed and boiling water is pumped into his rectum by an enema. Other types of torture are used which have never been heard of in other despotic systems. A heavy weight is hung from the testicles of the prisoner, maiming him in only a few minutes. Even the strongest prisoners have been crippled in this way. In the case of the women, the electric baton is moved over the naked body with the power increased on the breasts and on the interstices of the vagina. I've heard women screaming and laughing hysterically, shouting, Don't do it, I'll tell you. Rape is also a common practice. Thirteen-year-old girls have been raped in order to betray their parents, brothers, or relatives. Once, looking down from Dr. Rezvan's office, I saw a five- or six-year-old girl placed in front of several prisoners in handcuffs to disclose their identities. 
Anytime she would resist, she would be slapped or her ears would be pulled hard until she would cry and scream. She seemed to have no knowledge of what was happening, and she seemed to know none of the men." Unquote. And it was about Christmas time, and you know, Tehran was very cold. They stripped us, they beat the hell out of us. They, they beat, beat you with what? With flag, with whips. Oh. Yes, with cable, actually. They cable. cable. This thick, I mean, uh, three-fourths of inch. Uh, they shaved our, you know, hair and just make us look very ugly, and they beat the hell out of us. All over your body? All over our body. Well, it was funny. Everybody, every of these Sawak people, torturers, would come and just to, to have fun. It was, they were enjoying it, just to punch, to all, you know, I mean, they were just sadists, you know, they loved it. That kind of thing, and when you said, well, I don't have nothing to say, I don't know why you have arrested me, okay. And they would put you on these beds or, you know, chairs, special chair, beat the hell out of you, or make you naked and, you know, do, do all kinds of crazy things. So that was all terrible to hear. And it's after sections like that that certain acquaintances of the pod most want me to get into geopolitics and to talk about the larger motivations of the United States. And I get that. It seems like a natural response when confronted by the terrible things done by regimes which we supported to dive into the why of that support, to find a way to justify it, some greater good achieved to point to. But I personally don't think it's that interesting a question to ask, chiefly because even if I kept this podcast going until I'd covered every minute machination of the men in Washington from 1946 right through to 1989, the answer would almost always be the same one, that they thought it was either necessary or expedient in the fight against communism and the USSR. Now one way that is interesting is the way in which it parallels every answer to every question about why men do horrible things in the pursuit of their goals. It was necessary or expedient in defense of the church, of the prosecution of the Schlieffen Plan, in ending the war in Europe by firebombing Dresden, ending the war in the Pacific by firebombing Tokyo. There's a point at which that question becomes more interesting, which is in asking how could these men, who grew up in a system that championed due process and fair play and political freedom, how could they blithely destroy democracies the world over? But the answer remains pretty much banal, that they thought that the end, the defeat of world communism, justified the means. And if the shoebox that was Guatemala or that was Iran in the minds of U.S. policymaking elites read democracy on the label, that was well and good. But even if the label happened to read dictatorship, as long as that box belonged to us and not to them, then it was an acceptable compromise. There are two slightly more interesting questions there, as you drill down further, uh, which is that once you open that box and you realize that the dictator in power is keeping himself in office by making war on his own people, how then could you continue to support him? And further, once your own guys are inside the box, once the CIA men are in the torture rooms making videotapes to distribute to other little dictator allies around the world, how can you continue to believe that you're on the right side of this war you're fighting? But that is, like I said in the Guatemala show, a psychological question that I'm not in any way qualified to answer. Now, I want to recognize that there was a more dynamic conversation going on in Washington, and that it was constantly in flux over the course of the whole Cold War. From Kennan's long telegram laying out containment through NSC-68, Eisenhower's new look, flexible response under Kennedy and Johnson, so on and so on. 
That story is interesting, and the nuances in each new administration's stated policy vis-a-vis post-colonial and nationalist movements is too. But there are two reasons I don't want to, and I'm pretty sure I won't get into that story in these long shows. The first is that despite massive differences in their rhetoric, from Truman on, pretty much every U.S. administration treated those nationalist movements the same way. It's why what Reagan was doing with the Contras looked a lot like what Ike did with Guatemala. And second, I want the country shows to focus on particular cases, because pulling back from Guatemala City or Tehran, or hopefully in the future, Saigon or Seoul, tends to diminish the importance of the episode in question, and I think they all warrant our individual attention. However, right now I'm reading Gaddis's book on evaluating security policy during the Cold War, and I think it might be worth telling that story all on its own in what's probably going to be a very long, short show. That said, I'd like to tell you about something a little bit bigger picture, which I do think is interesting, and which was part of why I felt and continue to feel compelled to make this podcast. And that's the other way that the whole last half of the last century could have turned out. The dream that was. Before I start, I want to acknowledge that everything I'm about to get into is implausible. But history is built from implausibilities. Rome was a tiny city-state 2,500 years ago, but the structure of its politics and society are still the basis of ours today. The history of former colonies the world over has been disastrous, but the U.S. became world hegemon. The Christ, the Buddha, and the Prophet all died at the head of tiny, obscure movements, which went on to conquer and convert great swathes of humanity. In human history, the implausible is always also possible. But what I want to tell you about, and what I think is interesting, was that there was this moment, this great and golden opportunity in which the United States could have remade the world in its image. Not the way we're doing now, with our movies and television shows and Coca-Cola and Marlboro cigarettes, but the image that Wilson sold so powerfully during and after the First World War. I'm going to read you a long excerpt from Wilson's speech to the Congress proposing our entrance into the war. This is the gravity with which we still imagine that we act when considering armed action, and these are the values which we said we espoused through the whole rest of the 20th century. Long passage. Quote, Our object now, as then, is to vindicate the principles of peace and justice in the life of the world, as against selfish and autocratic power, and to set up among the really free and self-governed peoples of the world such a concert of purpose and of action as will henceforth ensure the observance of those principles. We are at the beginning of an age in which it will be insisted that the same standards of conduct and of responsibility for wrong done shall be observed among nations and their governments that are observed among the individual citizens of civilized states. Self-governed nations do not fill their neighbor states with spies or set the course of intrigue to bring about some critical posture of affairs which will give them an opportunity to strike and make conquest. Such designs can be successfully worked out only undercover and where no one has the right to ask questions. Cunningly contrived plans of deception or aggression, carried, as it may be, from generation to generation, can be worked out and kept from the light only within the privacy of courts or behind the carefully guarded confidences of a narrow and privileged class. They are happily impossible where public opinion commands and insists upon full information concerning all the nation's affairs. A steadfast concert for peace can never be maintained except by a partnership of democratic nations. No autocratic government could be trusted to keep faith within it or to observe its covenants. It must be a league of honor, a partnership of opinion. Intrigue would eat its vitals away. The plottings of inner circles who could plan what they would and render account to no one would be a corruption seated at its very heart. Only free peoples can hold their purpose and their honor steady to a common end, 
and prefer the interests of mankind to any narrow interest of their own. The world must be made safe for democracy. Its peace must be planted upon the tested foundations of political liberty. We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. We seek no indemnities for ourselves, no material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. We shall be satisfied when those rights have been made as secure as the faith and the freedom of nations can make them. It is a distressing and oppressive duty, gentlemen of the Congress, which I have performed in thus addressing you. There are, it may be, many months of fiery trial and sacrifice ahead of us. It is a fearful thing to lead this great, peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars, civilization itself seeming to be in the balance. But the right is more precious than peace, and we shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for a universal dominion of right by such a concert of free peoples as shall bring peace and safety to all nations and make the world itself at last free. To such a task we dedicate our lives and our fortunes, everything that we are and everything that we have, with the pride of those who know that the day has come when America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth and happiness and the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, she can do no other." Unquote. Now what I mean by all that is that while at the end of the war the U.S. was in no mood and in no position to back up Wilson's 14 points, at the end of the next war, we were. We knew even before the war ended that we would likely enough end up dividing the world between ourselves and the Soviet Union, and we expected that the USSR would be as brutal in its efforts to dominate the Third World as it had been in Eastern Europe. The question that remained was how we would shore up support on our side of the curtain. And I think that you could make a case that what happened during Truman and Eisenhower's terms was excusable. That even Arbenz and Mossadegh were excusable because the situation was too precarious, or they perceived it that way. Our allies in Western Europe had been devastated. The USSR was at the height of its power. Stalin was still at the helm, and communist parties the world over were well organized, and in some, but far from all cases, still aligned with Moscow. So I wouldn't, but you could make the case that when Eisenhower unseated Arbenz and Mossadegh, it might not have been the right thing to do, but might have seemed to those men not just the most expedient thing, but the only thing. At the same time though, in that same immediate post-war period, we were already using a different model than the one that we would put into practice in Iran and Guatemala. Communist parties were strong in England and France and West Germany and all of our continental allies. But there, rather than instigating coups, we left their politics pretty much alone and instead flooded them with aid. The Marshall Plan broke communism in Western Europe by providing an alternate model, one based on all of the political freedoms we enjoyed in the U.S. and backed up by the economic and technological might of the post-war United States. In what must sound like a very naive formulation, we used love rather than hate or violence or fear to win those countries irrevocably to our side. And there was this moment this brief moment, when it feels to me like that model, that strategy might have carried the day. Probably more when Kennedy was on the campaign trail than when he was in office, since the generals pretty quickly convinced him that they knew better what to do with Cuba and what to do with Vietnam. But there was a chance. Kennedy laid out the barest outlines of what that policy might have been in a very brief speech on the steps of the Student Union at the University of Michigan right before Election Day. A speech that, some people think, kind of roped him into creating the Peace Corps. Quote, 
I think in many ways this is the most important campaign since 1933, mostly because of the problems which press upon the United States and the opportunities which will be presented to us in the 1960s. The opportunity must be seized through the judgment of the President and the vigor of the Executive and the cooperation of the Congress. Through these I think we can make the greatest possible difference. How many of you who are going to be doctors are you willing to spend your days in Ghana? Technicians or engineers, how many of you are willing to work in the Foreign Service and to spend your lives traveling around the world? On your willingness to do that, not merely to serve one year or two years in the service, but on your willingness to contribute part of your life to this country, I think will depend the answer whether a free society can compete. I think that it can, and I think Americans are willing to contribute, but the effort must be far greater than we have ever made in the past." Unquote. Now there are a good many professionals in international development who will tell you that the Peace Corps is glorified volunteerism and that it can't do much of anything. And they might be right in the sense that the Peace Corps has a hard time tackling anything as big or as serious as a highway. But the dream that it embodies is a powerful one. Rather than sending our CIA men or our Marines or a couple of special embassy attaches or a shipment of guns or helicopters down to South America, we could instead send our best and our brightest our most hopeful and dedicated young people. One of the core tenets of the Peace Corps' approach to development has been since the beginning that it is always bottom-up, that volunteers take their cues from the people they're serving, not from DC and not even from the central office of the country in question. It holds dear the idea that the people of any given country, with a little American support and enthusiasm, can solve their own problems, no matter how grave, and that the people of the country in question will pay us back with simple friendship and invitations for more volunteers and more well-meaning help. So the thing that to me is interesting, when I think about those men in DC in the middle of the century who were pondering very seriously how they would go about winning the world away from the Russians, is that we could have done it differently. We were convinced that the Communist International would spare no constitution and no politics to create copies of itself all over the world, and rather than deciding to ape their tactics, we could have used models already in our possession, like the Marshall Plan and could have stuck by the freedoms and rights outlined in our Declaration, our Constitution, and in the UN Charter. And I imagine that world, one in which, instead of responding to every post-colonial nationalist movement with a knee-jerk fear of socialism, we had held out a hand instead. Arbenz and Mossadegh both looked to the US for leadership, and both had expected that helping hand. Imagine yourself, based on what you've heard in these shows, if, when the Iranian government was in dire straits after nationalization, We'd supported Mossadegh and given him the loans and the technical training in oil drilling and refining that he needed. We might have had an actual democratic ally in the Islamic Middle East right now, rather than having had to quote-unquote rely on the Mohammad Reza Shahs and Hosni Mubarak's and Saddam Hussein's of the world. That same situation, where newly free national leaders looked to the US for leadership and got warfare or dirty tricks instead, played out at the beginning of virtually all of our foreign policy disasters after World War II. Fidel Castro became an almost mythical enemy of the United States, but after the Cuban Revolution, it was he who reached out to us. We, fearing socialist elements in his coalition, planned the Bay of Pigs and sent him, unwillingly, into the arms of the Soviets. In Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh had had the explicit and military support of the United States in his nationalist fight against the Japanese and collaborationist French, and at the end of the Second World War, as Truman was repeating Wilsonian rhetoric about national self-determination, Ho Chi Minh rightly expected the United States to endorse his declaration of Vietnamese independence. Instead, we funded France's war to make Indochina back into a colony, and took over the fighting when their endurance gave out. 
The world has always been a mess. A mess of great powers and petty strongmen and the violence that they cause everyone else to suffer. And there had never in all of human history been a moment when just two powers would decide the fate of the entire world between them. But rather than that being a transformative moment, the likes of which Homo sapiens has never seen, the world continued to be a mess, entirely through the bumbling cruelty of those same great powers. But while the USSR had always put the end before the means by way of dialectical materialism, the United States had not. And there was a time when Kennedy was standing on the steps of the Michigan Union, when we could have imagined that rather than worry about the immigrants and refugees fleeing conflicts that we sparked in Latin America, Africa, South Asia, and the Middle East, we could have been worrying about their burgeoning industries and rejoicing in their ascendant art and culture. And almost from the day Jack Kennedy took office till today, we've been betraying that dream and destroying that opportunity until there was nothing of it left. And why it happened strikes me as much less interesting than the tragedy of that it happened at all. So that's the aspect of all this horror that's compelling to me, and charting it, trying to catalog all the ways that we've failed to live up to that promise and the opportunity that we had in the mid-century is part of why I wanted to start this podcast. That, and to spit in the face of this idea that we've always been a benevolent force in the world, and that if we ever went astray, that whatever we did was small, and that in the grand scheme of things, we should just write it off. I hate that idea. I hate it in the first place because I hate that all those men and all these agencies and even the United States as a country might get away with the victors writing the history bit, that they might never be called to account, not even in books, not even posthumously, for what they did and allowed to be done and what we de facto allowed them to do in our names. But there's another side that's even more odious, and it's that when we try to elide the darker, more grotesque aspects of our history, we're telling the victims of that history, the politically disenfranchised, the colonized, the enslaved, the raped, tortured, and murdered, that their deaths don't measure up against the myth of American exceptionalism, of American goodness, and American perfection. That, to me, is intolerable. There was a Jesuit priest who wrote one of the books that I relied on most heavily in my later episodes on Guatemala, the ones that talked about Rios Mont and the massacres in the countryside. That priest went out through the 70s and 80s to talk to the survivors of the violence and to compile the stories of what happened in their villages. And the thing that struck me was that he collected the names of the dead. Now, he was an anthropologist, and I'm in my own small way a historian, and both he and I know that those names don't help our disciplines at all. My understanding of the historical forces that provoked that conflict isn't improved by knowing the name of some nobody out in the jungle, and their names didn't advance the anthropological study of their villages or the liberation theology movement much either. So why collect the names? Well, the word martyr means witness in Greek, and the priest nearly always referred to them, the victims, as martyrs. And in the time he was going out to collect their names, there was not much that the priest could do about the situation in Guatemala. He'd been part of the liberation theology movement that had been thoroughly crushed, and nothing that he'd done either in the villages in the countryside nor in the university in Guatemala City had done anything, over three decades, to change or to pacify the regime. He and his had been totally defeated 
by the combined forces of the military juntas and the United States government. The only thing left that he could do for these people, these nobodies, these nothings who had become anonymous corpses, was to give them back their names, to allow them, through their names, to bear witness to the very personal destruction that was the end result of U.S. policy. And that speaks to something I've been thinking about a lot lately. A friend of this podcast, a lady named Marsha, told me that she'd been having trouble processing the later Guatemala shows, had found inside of herself an aversion, a desire to just block it all out. Because what could she do? And even worse, what if she was in some way responsible? Well, let me tell you a story. A little while ago, I went with my girlfriend to the terribly named Corona Revolution Fest here in Guadalajara, a big concert where a lot of the most popular post-punk, ska, and reggae bands, part of a musical movement that pretty much died out in the U.S., but never stopped being popular here, came to play. About halfway through, a band named La Maldita Vecindad, which means something like That Damn Neighborhood, started to play. Now, one of the things my girlfriend likes about this band is that in concert, before each song, their lead singer takes time to talk about the political context, not of when the song was written, but right then at the moment of performance and what it meant to them. Partway through their set, he started to address the violence in Mexico and the corruption and complicity of the Mexican government. And as they launched into the song, behind them played a slideshow of drawings, and these drawings were of a group of young men known as the Ayotzinapa 43. This might have happened too long ago and too far away for you to remember well, but a mass kidnapping happened here in Mexico in September of 2014. A group of students from a radical teacher's college in the state of Guerrero did what they always did that time of year. They politely hijacked a couple of public buses to make their way to Mexico City in time to commemorate the massacre of students that happened there in 1968. This is always inconvenient, but the rural teachers' colleges are an important part of Mexico, and of Guerrero in particular. So everybody turns a blind eye, and they return the buses when they're done. Well, this time, the mayor of Ayotzinapa, the nearby town, was having some kind of event, and he told his police to take care of the kids. Both the mayor and the police were more or less part of the cartel that runs much of that state, and rather than arresting the kids, something else entirely happened. The Mexican government did its best afterwards to avoid and then obstruct the investigation, so none of this is very clear, but the police had a shootout with the kids, if you can call something a shootout when only one side has any guns. During the firefight, a few kids escaped and a few others were shot, but by the next morning, 43 were missing. And as the Mexican Attorney General dragged his feet for months, we didn't find much of anything out. And later, when they couldn't avoid it anymore, it looked like the kids had been turned over to the cartel directly, that they had been tortured, murdered, and burned, then stuffed in garbage bags and hidden or thrown in a river. But that story smacked, at the time, of the government trying to cover up something even worse, if you can imagine it. And while they uncovered more mass graves and more bags and some parts that an Austrian team positively identified as belonging to the students, the rallying cry across the entire Mexican Republic was Los queremos vivos. We want them alive. So this slideshow at the concert was part of a project where Mexican artists painted and drew the students and a message alongside of them. Yo, Andrea Garcia, quiero saber dónde está Abel García Hernández. I, Andrea Garcia, want to know where he is. I, Beatrix de Velasco, want to know where Abelardo Velázquez Penitén is. I, Julián Cicero, want to know where Aden Abraham de la Cruz is, where Alexander Mora Beroncio is, 
where Antonio Santana Maestro is, where Asensio Bautista is, where Bernardo Flores is, where Carlos Ivan Ramirez is. Some of those drawings included the same desperate mantra, Los queremos vivos, we want them alive. It was hard to believe when it happened that we'd ever see those kids again, and it was harder still months later when those drawings were made. It's impossible now, but the phrase always spoke more to desire than to expectation. And I'm not in any way stretching the truth to tell you that it's become more forward-looking now, referring to all the other young men and women that fall victim to the violence of the cartels in the state here. Los queremos vivos. We want them alive now, still, and tomorrow. I'd spent a lot of time and ink thinking about the Ayotzinapa 43 when it happened, and for months or years afterward, but I hadn't thought about them too much recently, and I stopped dancing and just looked at every new slide and read every new plea. And I nearly broke down sobbing there in the middle of that crowd, which surprised me. Because I'd been angry when it happened. I'd been angry at the government, been angry at the people in my town who refused to protest, who somehow believed that violence to the North and South wouldn't someday come for them. Angry at people and politicians in the United States whose war on drugs had brought things to this point in Mexico. And angriest of all at the Mexican government's successful efforts to discredit the protest movement through Ajahn's provocateurs. It's easy to be angry. It feels good to be angry. And it's easy to imagine when you're angry that you might could do something about it. But there in that concert a couple of weeks ago, we'd already seen the aftermath. The apathy in the U.S. and the defeat of the feeling of unity and opposition that had blossomed all over this country in the weeks and months after the kidnappings. And the only thing left to do was to read their names and see their faces and let what was happening inside of me happen. Now maybe I'm susceptible to this because I'm Catholic. Because of the Holy Week masses, where all the extraneous garbage of the religion is stripped away to the essential truths of sacrifice and martyrdom. For anybody who hasn't brushed up recently, Christ enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, is betrayed, taken to the Roman authorities, condemned, and then crucified on Good Friday. And in the Holy Week masses, there is a call and response that happens during the homilies that takes place almost nowhere else. The priest plays the role of the Roman governor and the congregation that of the citizens of Jerusalem. And when Pilate asks us what should be done with him, we answer, time and again, crucify him. And then, if we're especially good Catholics, we walk the stations of the cross, trying to imagine the pain and the sacrifice of that long, lonely journey to Calvary, and the trial, until three o'clock on the cross. It's a powerful ritual, and it speaks to martyrdom and to our complicity our willingness to let other people suffer for our sins, our transgressions, our omissions, our failures to act, and our decisions to turn a blind eye. It's easy to be moved to tears in those masses, not by rhetoric so much, but by your own understanding of what went on, or by your understanding of the story, if you like that version, of what went on 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. And I think that sadness and those tears may be the only appropriate response left to us when things are so thoroughly said and done. It's not much good anymore to get angry at or to hate the Romans, and analyzing why, in their geopolitics, they had to put down all Jewish revolts does little, I think, to enlighten the passion or a witness to it. So to this listener, Marcia, and anybody who feels like her, there's not much that any of us can do about the events in these podcasts. 
There wasn't much any of us could do at the time if we were alive, and there's even less now. Sure, you can cast a vote every two or four years. If you're really lucky, you can make a podcast about it, and if, and if you're even luckier, become an influential journalist or writer, and bring things to an even wider audience. But for most of us, there's nothing that we can offer Mossadegh or Arbenz or their peoples, nothing more we can give to all the unfortunate victims of American foreign policy, nothing more we can do for the Ayatsinapa 43 than to remember them, to give them back their names and their histories, and if it strikes us, to cry. So with this podcast, I'm trying to do in the smallest way what that Jesuit priest did for the dead in Guatemala. And I'm hoping to do for you what the slideshow at that concert did for me. To remind you that three years on, or ten, or fifty, they still have names, and that we can still bear witness. And to remind all of you and myself that however powerless we feel ourselves to be in an overpopulated and over-bureaucratized world, that when something is going on right now, when it's not locked unchangeably decades in the past, that there is nothing more important than that we use what little power we have, lest in another 50 years people should look back and remember us not as the victims, but as the nameless perpetrators that threw up their hands and stood by and let things happen. Well, that's just about the end of what turned out to be a very long digression to finish up the 10th episode of Safe for Democracy. It's been just about a year since the first show about Guatemala went up, and just under one a month is definitely slower than what I'd envisioned for this whole thing before I started. There's some built-in limits to how quickly I can turn these shows out, though, and some pretty long leaves of absence, like the one I just had for a family reunion and some other business in Tennessee, certainly don't help. I've been trying to deliver some more regular, shorter content to fill in those gaps, and I hope that my regular listeners are getting something out of it. But the good news is that this year looks much freer and clearer. Rob Morris will be happy to hear that I won't be headed to law school until next fall, and since this will be my last go-round trying to make the writing and freelancing and podcasting thing work, it's going to be some serious buckle-down for the next 12 months. With that in mind, I've got some plans and a deal that I'd like to lay out for you. In my original pie-in-the-sky ideas for the arc of this show, I wanted to cover every conceivable lower-profile conflict and mishap, and then, for a grand finale, I wanted to cover Vietnam. One last big, high-visibility series that I figured would take about a year. Given that I've got a year left, if this podcast doesn't take off to living-earning and parent-impressing proportions, or I don't get a regular job writing elsewhere by next summer, I figure I'll start on Vietnam as soon as I'm done with Iran. But since I don't want to leave all that lesser-known history by the wayside, I'm going to try some other stuff out, like a greatest hits show where even if briefly I hit everything I'd originally wanted to, and stuff like I mentioned about 15 minutes ago, diving a little less facetiously into the great power politics Cold War debates going on at Foggy Bottom, Pennsylvania Avenue, and the Pentagon from the 50s through the 80s. I want to hammer it this year, and in that interest I'm going to do a little bit less of the freelancing busywork that I've been doing, and fall back a little bit harder on my savings. That's my end of the deal. Your end is to help me out. And I don't necessarily mean on Patreon. With the cost of living being as low as it is in Mexico, obviously even a small donation goes a long way for me, but I've been a struggling young person long enough to know that five bucks a month can be a lot to ask. But what helps me and this show just as much is when you talk about it, when you show it to your friends, when you reshare my posts on the SFD page on Facebook, when you get active on Reddit or something awful or Metafilter, 
or when you reach out to me on Twitter or on the show page. If you all can do that for me, then I can promise to deliver you one dynamite series on Vietnam and everything else I can think of in between. Deal? Deal. For right now, you know you can find the notes for this show and every show up on safefordemocracy.com. You can connect with SFD at that website, on Facebook, on Twitter, and now on Medium, and, if you really want to, on Tumblr. You can find us and the exclusive extra content we're putting together for patrons at patreon.com slash safefordemocracy. And special thanks there to Ernie Piper, Alex Guyton, and my very own sister, who pointed out she's the only member of the family I never mention, Catherine Coombs, for being my very first supporters. SFD is written, produced, codified, expounded, you know the drill. This show is a one-man operation, and I am that man. Next time, the Ayatollah Khomeini comes to Tehran, and revolution comes with him. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Mm-hmm.